welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow. And today, really excited to be joined by Rajesh Ramachandran, who is a postdoctoral researcher at Heidelberg University. So welcome to the show, Rajesh. Hi, thanks so much, Lev, and good afternoon to everyone. Today, we're going to talk about a paper that you co-authored with two other people called Vernacularization and Linguistic Democratization. Such a cool paper. Uh, we haven't talked about anything like this on the show. So let's talk about the, the background, the context. You write about there being a, a disconnect between the language that people write and the, the language that people actually speak. What's this disconnect called? There's a formal term for it, right? Um, so this, this term, the, the formal term for this disconnect is called diglossia, um, was, con was um, conceptualized by an Arabic scholar, actually, called Ferguson in, in a famous article in 1959. And he was referring, actually, to the Arabic world, uh, which even today faces this disconnect because uh, the form of Arabic that's actually written uh, or used for uh, education for any kind of formal domain remains very, very disconnected from the forms of Arabic that are spoken on a day-to-day -day basis. So the forms of spoken Arabic have never been uh, written down and that continues to exist this disconnect. And he was referring to how it even continues to prevail today in the Arabic world and how this was a dominant feature of Latin Europe. And later on, this has been in fact extended this, uh, this definition of diglossia to also to be able to refer to non-cognate pairs such as, you know, thinking about uh, various sub-Saharan African countries where most of the indigenous languages haven't been written down to date and they continue to depend upon English, for instance, or French, which are spoken languages, but they still di di um, display the same kind of disconnect that we are referring to the language of education, the language of politics, the language of law is different from the language that people speak on a day-to-day -day basis. Right. And so it seems to me that there would be some really high costs that are generated when non-elites and elites speak different languages. So I want to get into the case study that you looked at here, but why do you think or what did you find was the reason that this gap still persists today? Europe, so in a particular way, when you, the way you pose this question, you know, uh, you might in fact think that, you know, the norm is that people use languages that they speak on a day-to-day -day basis as the language of education or as a language for organizing society. But startlingly, the fact is that large parts of the world, in fact, do not. Uh, may that be in the past or may that be today. At one level, you can think about the fact that today, you know, English lacks, acts as the language of science, for instance, you know, and of course, there are benefits to English being a common language, whether it's used in, say, for instance, thinking about economists working in Germany, in India or in the United States. It allows for pooling of ideas. It allows for kind of an elite exchange to happen. So, of course, there are kind of gains coming from it. But at the same time, there's also cost imposed on, for instance, uh, the people in India who don't have access to English, who don't learn in English. Of course, everybody in Germany ends up learning English as a subject, but of course, it's not their primary language. So you see that there is this kind of two forces that are operating at the same time. One, allowing for kind of a global exchange of ideas, especially among elites. And of course, there can be benefits to this. 
And then there is the cost, which is typically being borne by the majority of the population, which needs to be able to invest uh, to be able to acquire this linguistic capital in some sense. Let's talk about the case study. We're going to focus on Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation of 1517. And this event, this posting of the, uh, the 95 Theses may have done more than anything else in, in European history to close some of that gap, in, at least in Germany, right? So tell us what you found. So um, uh, the way we kind of approach this problem and uh, is to provide a kind of a, the first empirical perspective on thinking about linguistic change. We are able to leverage this incredible data set that's been put together by the British Library, which is called the Universal Short Title Catalog, uh, which is basically a complete census of each and every title that's published in Europe. And it tells me information about the city in which it's published, uh, the year in which it's published, uh, the topic that it pertains to, and most importantly, the language that's written in it. So what do you observe is that once the printing press is invented, you know, for the first 50 years, uh, the share of vernaculars are, so this is basically the spoken tongues, are comprising anywhere between 10 to 30% of the written text. And then, of course, you observe this, one of the biggest kind of breaks in history, you know, we, we talk about this being maybe the last single biggest example of a push that comes about to break this disconnect. And of course, different people are motivated by different concerns. Luther basically wants to get social depth. He realizes the only way to contest the Catholic Church at that point of time is to be able to reach out to a broad section of people. He's arguing that the, the justifications that are being propagated by the Catholic Church in the sense of, you know, sale of indulgences is very, very common. It's one of the most important sources of revenue for the Catholic Church at the point of time. And Luther stands up and says, you know, this is not what the Bible says. You know, you can't be selling indulgences or paying off your sins and thus be free from purgatory. And, and that's where the debate breaks out, you know, and, and he says, well, we, let's go back to the roots. Let's see what the Bible has to say. And for what for people to be able to see what the Bible has to say, he decides to kind of translate it into uh, German. And basically that sets the ground for this kind of break that we see. So at the same, once, the, once Luther writes the Bible, which is the most important text of that moment in that period, you know, there's a complete change. You know, till then, vernaculars are looked at as being these kind of, you know, rabid mongrels, you know, they're having not style, they're not having stability. And, you know, Latin being this kind of pristine language, the only language in which knowledge can be transmitted. And once the words of God can be transmitted in the language that men speak, there's kind of this break that happens, you know, all other kinds of literature ranging from astronomy books uh, to classics uh, to all forms of science, they start to be written in the vernacular at that point of time. So what we observe in the data is in a period of 150 years from a share of less than 10%, in a 150 years, the spoken tongues are gonna to comprise about 60% of all printed works by the end of the 16th century. So you see this really, huge change happening uh, across the entirety of the European continent. Okay, so that happens also even in Catholic areas. Exactly. So that's the very, very interesting part. So, you know, there's always been this kind of debate about trying to understand, you know, what were the long run consequences of the Protestant Reformation? And there's always been this kind of thinking that, you know, wow, Protestant Reformation made a huge difference. But when you look in the long run, you observe that Catholic and Protestant cities at the end of the 18th century, they don't look very different. What we show in this paper is what's very interesting is that this, the, this linguistic change starts off in the Protestant cities, but 
before this there's been this kind of demand building up there has been this kind of merchants you know with the crusades happening you know there have been towns that have been setting there are there's a bursting of towns across europe the number of towns are going to double in a period of about uh, 100 years and merchants are becoming more and more important and you know a lot of data shows that these merchants were much more conversant fluent in the vernaculars literacy rates in the vernaculars were much higher but there were this kind of political forces the catholic church was deriving a lot of rents from preserving the position of latin so once this break comes about you observe that you know uh, the other actors who have been kind of vying for this change even the political powers the kings you know they are buying legitimacy from the catholic church once an alternative provider comes in who says well we can also provide you legitimacy the kings desire to maintain the monopoly on the domain of language is also kind of weakening because you know there's a greater demand from the merchants so basically you're going to observe that quickly this phenomena over a period of 40 years is just going to spill over into catholic series too and you're going to observe this linguistic transformation occur across the entirety of europe irrespective of the religious denomination the only category of books where we find that this gap remains constant is in the case of bible so the, in the catholic areas you know the catholic church is able to kind of maintain a kind of control on the language in which the bible is written but in every other area you're going to kind of find we observe a kind of convergence that happens in the 150 year period i'm wondering if this plays a role in the formation of of the nation state of borders in in a way it's it's the so if you think about so the classic in time kind of thinking about you know formation of nation states in the context of europe is 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 work by benedict anderson and you know the example that uh, he cites in the book is you know for instance you know think about yourself you know you are traveling in in india and you walk into a bar and you suddenly meet somebody from the united states you suddenly have a connection you know you start chatting with them you know you ask them what's happening although you never met them before you're most likely never going to meet them again so basically he says you know these imagined communities were created and the basis on which these imagined communities are created are linguistic lines so basically you know these supra languages then come up come come into existence today we think about germany being linguistically homogeneous but of course that's not the case there are yeah. a variety of dialects underlying it they just kind of coalesce to form today what we understand as hochdeutsch or high german in some sense so uh that's going to be the focal point basically on the basis of which identity is going to be uh, signaled and that's going to form the boundaries of the modern nation state very very different from the process that we observe in the post colonial period the language typically is not going to be the basis for forming what we call as let's say political units that are going to come about you wrote in your paper that in cities where you have really high vernacular printing output there's a a strong positive correlation with with births of future famous individuals that's pretty incredible um what's important about that one of the biggest kind of questions in the social sciences has been you know what's being called the great divergence you know what resulted in Europe suddenly starting around the 15th century uh, mid turn of the 16th century around the time the protestant reformation is going to happen actually that it suddenly basically 
starts experiencing this explosion, what we call kind of a scientific revolution, knowledge systems are going to change, you know, growth and development is just going to shoot through the sky and other parts of the world till then, you know, China and India, which are on power with Europe till that point of time, suddenly are going to just lag behind at some point uh, in, in this process. And what we are trying to here see is that, you know, what was the basis of this kind of transformation that we are observing. And one of the important explanations has been in the literature has been what we have called the rise of these knowledge elites. And the question has been, you know, where did these new knowledge elites come from? Our explanation for these, where these new knowledge elites come from is quite straightforward. We basically show that, you know, there's a sudden explosion in terms of material that's available in a language that's much more accessible to people. As a result of which we show that there's a great increase in diversity in terms of the kinds of writers that come about. So lots of people from lower socioeconomic background start to write books. Consequently, a lot more people start to participate in the process of knowledge production and creation. And thus, you know, in contemporary times, we talk about, you know, there's this, this stream of work in the context of the United States, which is called the lost Einsteins, you know, it basically looking at different counties across the United States and asking, you know, what if mobility in certain areas was equivalent to the mobility that we observe in areas where, you know, kids from the lower income quintiles can make it up the, the population ladder. And they show, you know, there's a lot of lost Einsteins today in the United States because opportunity is very unequally distributed. And we hear kind of say, you know, this provides the mirror image, you know, that suddenly just by increasing opportunity by you through the use of a common language suddenly creates a lot more of these Einsteins, you know, the, the conversion rate just increases. And consequently, you know, a lot of people have shown that these knowledge elites were very important for the growth and development that occurred in Europe. And we here provide an explanation for or propose one of the explanations of one of the channels that could have underlied this conversion of lost talent into potential Einsteins in some sense. You know, I'd never thought before, before you just mentioned it, about the elite using their elite language as a, as a sort of for rent. Um, I hadn't thought about it in those terms before. And I wonder if we observe today the, the internet as a way to create more democratization in the way that the printing press did. Do, do we have any evidence that in say countries like India, the, the text that people are, are reading and writing on the web is, is written more in the vernacular than, than say English? Um, I would say more than India, uh, India is kind of, it's kind of peculiar in the sense that, you know, India's timeframes of vernacularization were very, very similar to Europe. But I think a very interesting example of the kind of phenomena that you're referring to, I can think, think of two. One is in the context of thinking about Arabic, you know. So, so this work, which shows that, you know, when you look at this kind of, when you look at what happened with the Arab revolution, for instance, with the Arab Spring, basically, you see that the most of the chat that happened, you know, most of the exchanges, how people were mobilized using the internet, most of the conversation took place in the Arabic vernaculars. And typically no formal, so even children books don't exist in the, in, in, in the Arabic vernaculars today, you know? So people have to read 
books to the kids in a format that they would never speak to them ever. That's one example I would say where there's kind of this kind of linguistic democratization to a certain extent has happened. Another interesting example I would say is when you think about the BBC today, the BBC has a page using pigeon, for instance, uh, the Cameroonian variety in particular. And, you know, when you are, I've worked a lot in sub-Saharan Africa and, you know, pigeon again carries this very negative connotation. And, and so that's two examples that I can immediately think about, you know, where the internet has had this kind of uh, a, a democratizing influence in terms of, you know, the kinds of varieties that have become popular but sadly, till now, they haven't been very strongly reflected in the institutional structure, in particular in educational systems in such countries. One of the reasons that I, there's, there's a few reasons, but one of the reasons that I didn't go on to get my, my PhD was yeah. that I, I found reading academic text really hard and not very rewarding. And it seems to me that you know, again, to talk about rents, that there's a lot of rent seeking going on in academia. And I'm wondering if knowing what you know now, do you try to urge your professors change the kind of text that they're that they're giving people and maybe make it a little bit simpler for people to understand? Without a doubt. So I can tell you from two personal experiences. So one thing is and is that, you know, when I when I start off teaching any course, you know, at, at one of the important things that I always tell the students is that, you know, if you cannot, if somebody asks you something and then, you know, conceptually, you can't explain it to them and you're going to say, well, you know, it's too complicated. It's too statistics. Then there's something wrong in the way you have understood it because we are explaining social phenomena. We are explaining human behavior. And if you can't explain it to your mother or your grandmother, there's something clearly fundamentally wrong in the way you've understood it. So I think that is, especially for the profession of economics, you know, I think there is a lot of this kind of, use of tools which kind of preserve boundaries and kind of preserve rents but to a certain extent maybe that is true for all professions in some sense not only to to say that about economics but i do do completely agree with you and i think one important step that at least universities in places such as europe where you know research is being largely funded or mainly funded principally funded through public money is that, you know, people like me, whenever we write a paper, which is meant for a specialized scientific audience, at the same time, you know, there has to be this kind of emphasis that we are able to put together a non-technical summary, an abstract that is able to reach out to, to a normal educated person without shrouding it in these kind of mysterious languages. So that, you know, at the end of the day, all this research, at least in my field, is directly relevant to society. So at the end of the day, if I can't explain it to a normal societal member, clearly there's something wrong with the institutional structure that we are setting up. So in that regard, I completely agree with you. There's much, much more I could do in terms of trying to make break it down to be able to reach out to uh, public at large. And I think I fail in several aspects, but there's something that I always try to keep in, 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 in top of my mind that uh, my explanations Hopefully, I never shrouded in this kind of mystery, but I completely see your point. And, and that's kind of a different level of linguistic barrier that surely operates across disciplines. Some of them can't be taken away, but some of them certainly can be taken away.